The Call of the Sea by Antonia Charlesworth Stack Narrated by Karen Esposito Welcome Address and Tour of Mirin Bright's House by Hannah Wallace, Curator, July the 5th, 2026 To be in the company of Mirin Bright was both beguiling and bemusing. By her own uncertain calculations, when I first met her, she was nearing her 100th birthday. Whether or not she reached it before her strange passing will likely remain a mystery. There is no birth record, no family tree to trace. But from today, there is a fitting tribute to the enigmatic and enchanting woman whose unlikely tale is a treasure trove of previously untold riches. Following hard-won heritage funding of £200,000 for its restoration, Bright's former home on Blackpool's Queen's Promenade is finally opening its doors to the public. The exhibition space in which we stand today hosts a permanent display dedicated to Bright's extraordinary life as a performer. It's one that took her from the depths of the Derby Olympic baths as one half of a gifted synchronised swimming duo to the heights of the Tower Circus as the leader of the awe-inspiring Aqua Bells, before a wave of controversy left her cast out of mainstream entertainment. Adjacent rooms will be open to community groups, artists and performers as spaces for creative development, while six bedrooms across two upper floors will be granted to female artists and writers for creative retreats. All of this is a nod to the building's former function as a boarding house for visiting entertainers both during and after World War II, when the town's many guest houses were full of servicemen and holiday makers, and private houses opened their doors to accommodate the exodus of musicians and performers from the capital who wanted to work without the threat of a blitz. If you want a museum of circus, you've found one, Mirin told me at our first meeting. Little did I know that an actual museum was likely her plan from the moment she agreed to talk to me. It led me to ensuring her legacy lives on. Throughout this talk, I will share audio from my interviews with Mirin Bright, which took place in the last weeks of her fascinating life. This old house hosted everyone who was anyone, and plenty of nobodies too. Trapeze artists... Jugglers, lion tamers, and tightrope walkers. Dear old Mrs. Welsh provided room and board for them all, and never complained a bit about their unusual habits. It was not uncommon to have to navigate your way past a unicyclist in the hallway, on the way to your morning ablutions. It wasn't just circus folk, mind you, dear. The lights in Blackpool shone brighter than ever after those dark days of the war. From pier to pier to pier was a hub of activity and entertainment for anyone who wanted to forget it. And we all did. Singers, soprano and show, dancers, ballroom and bare-breasted, <laughs> would-be Hollywood stars, comics. Conjurers, cads and con artists gathered at the after-hours parties here, which only got going once the holiday makers had had their fill of entertainment and were tucked up in their Blackpool double beds, four foot, on account of the pokey rooms, 
there were musicians of every calibre. This old house was alive with music. The whole town was. I've been known to sing a song or two myself, if a gentleman asked nicely enough. There were thespians who thought they were a cut above it all, and sideshow acts that nobody would be seen in the cold light of day with, but within these four walls they were all the same, trying to earn a few bob and keep the show alive. Mrs. Welsh, who Mirren refers to here, was the dear old lady who owned the house. The circumstances of how Mirren came to live with her she never fully understood, and Mrs. Welsh's own explanation, as told here by Mirren, is the best one we have. I was a foundling, you see, dear. Terribly sad. Mrs. Welsh claimed to have found me washed up with a tide. Hatched from the sea, she reckoned, fully formed as a girl of seven or eight. People have become more reasonable now, but they liked to believe in magic in those depressed days. And who am I to get in the way of a good story? Like Heathcliff of Water, not more. I was a wild little thing. Whenever the old girl took her eyes off me, I would go hopping over the sea wall to play in the shallows, showing up hours later, sopping wet, with pockets stuffed with shells, pebbles, and all the wonders the sea had to offer me, inanimate and living. Or else I'd strip down to my underclothes and swim as long as the tide allowed me, much to the scandalization of passing folk, I tell you. Oh, I did cause her some headaches. Why she stuck with me, I'll never know. But she never did have children of her own. Or any gentleman passed through the sanctity of her boudoir, for that matter. At least, none that I ever knew of. Me? I've known a few boys over the years. None of them worth his salt, but good enough for a bit of company and a few laughs. These walls have heard a lot of laughter in their time, I tell you. It was the main order of business for those in the circus, of course. Try as she might, the old girl never could reel me in, God rest her soul, but she did find creative ways of accommodating my proclivities, in my little cellar rooms and, of course, in the old baths. Mrs. Welsh, I never called her by any other name, would send me off with a packed lunch of bread and butter, a slice of tongue if I was lucky, and I would swim my days away in their salty depths. Oh, the Derby baths really were a second home to me from the moment they opened. I was on the precipice of womanhood by then. Sea water baths, they called them. But you can't beat the real thing. We now know that Mrs. Welsh was Eliza Welsh, born in 1886. She inherited this house and some wealth from her father, and was, as Mirren says, a spinster. It is possible that Mirren was, in fact, her natural child, though she described their relationship as a practical arrangement to the end. That Mirren had no memory of her life before the age of seven or eight also suggests she may have been younger than she was told by Mrs. Welsh or that she may have experienced trauma-induced childhood amnesia. The simplest explanation, of course, is that Mirren's account itself is unreliable.
She revealed this story to me during my first interview with her, and I wrangled with the ethics of recording it for the nearby Museum of Illumination, for which I was collating oral histories from circus performers in my role as a junior curator. Though she seemed lucid, I assumed she was suffering from dementia, but whether I used her testimony or not, I was inexorably drawn into the old lady's strange vortex. At this point, I had spent weeks trying to track Mirin down after first coming across a photograph of her, which today can be seen on the gallery wall to your left. It was taken in the flooded circus ring of the Tower Circus and shows a beautiful young woman reaching her head backwards towards her feet, forming an almost perfect circle. Her auburn hair floats upwards in a gentle mass, revealing her to be underwater, but obscuring her body, her feet almost buried in her hair. Her face is tranquil, and when I first saw it, I felt Mirin was gazing beyond the lens and the decades, directly at me. I was filled with an unsettling melancholy and an overwhelming urge to discover her story. The photograph was annotated. In faded, elegant script. Mirin Bright, 52. And soon I found myself scouring newspapers and archives for clues about who this woman was. Like the stories of so many incredible women, she was hidden in plain sight. On the day we eventually met, I was in no doubt that I had found the woman from the photograph. Her silver hair was still long, bundled into an elegant knot of coils high on her head. Her heart-shaped jawline, though softened with the years, was still visible. She sat tall in her wing-back chair, from which she shared most of her stories, with an impeccable, dancer-like posture. But it was her eyes that confirmed it to me, sea-green and deep as oceans. As she held my gaze at that first introduction, I felt unsteady on my feet. I found myself amid the then faded grandeur of this very room. Like many of you, I'm sure, I had passed this large ramshackle house countless times and never noticed it, sandwiched between more unassuming houses, mid-century flats and the garish facades of seafront hotels. During the sympathetic renovation process, we have strived to retain many of the house's original features and furnishings. Mirin's chair remains, as does the baby grand piano, still littered with gilded-framed, sepia-toned photographs of some of the many performers and friends who pass through these doors. The grandiose chandelier, beneath which some of Blackpool's most acclaimed performers rendezvoused, has been painstakingly restored. That day, I arrived armed with a folder of documents I had unearthed, and, perhaps naively, hoping for a straightforward if not comprehensive, explanation of them. Experience had taught me that the circus was a typically closed community, so I was quite unprepared for Mirin's willingness to talk, and even more so for the confounding story she shared. Throughout this talk, I'll share a couple of these documents with you, as well as others I discovered later. The audio recordings that are available to listen to within this gallery feature Mirin's in-depth accounts of each of them, but I'd like to share some of her more unusual anecdotes about them with you. I hope they will help you begin to understand the particulars of what made Mirin Bright 
such a captivating character. On the screen behind me, you will see a yellowing paper programme from the 1949 Water Follies show at the Derby Baths, in which Mirren Bright performed alongside her long-time swimming partner and beloved friend, Valentina Valtimeri. The programme lists a host of aquatic performances, including a troupe of high-wire artistes, which it claims is the continent's greatest aerial sensation. A Hawaiian aqua symphony entitled On the Beach at Waikiki, and a man who apparently balanced on one finger, called Tay Ru. The headline act is Johnny Weissmuller, an American Olympic swimmer and actor who played Tarzan in 12 films made between 1932 and 1948, the year before the Water Folly show. Listed as the penultimate act of Weissmuller's grand finale are the Sisters Siren, their tagline warning of the Irresistible Call of Mirin and Valentina Valtimeri. Mirin's surname is omitted, on account of the show's producers Jack Taylor and Tom Arnold's wish to pass them off as siblings, something Mirin described as a natural explanation for the way they understood one another's rhythms. On the inside pages, shown here, the pair are photographed in pale halter-neck swimming costumes and sparkling asymmetrical headpieces, intended to represent coral. A brief caption describes how the beautiful maidens will mesmerise the audience with their effortless and hypnotic rhythmic sequences. When I showed this photograph to Mirin, her expression darkened as she took it in her soft, translucent hands. It evoked in her some painful memories. Follies was right. What a big fuss that show caused. One problem, of course, was rehearsal space. The baths were big, but there were scores of performers, and the day before the big show, we all showed up at once, wanting to iron out the details of our respective routines. There was a natural solution, of course, just the other side of the sea wall, and Val was easily enough persuaded in the summer months. As was usual in the season back then, even that far north, the beach was busy with holidaymakers. Val and I swam out far enough to practice unencumbered in relatively still waters and had been out there for about twenty minutes when we noticed a huge commotion coming from the shore and people flocking together. It's not unusual for holidaymakers to get themselves into trouble in the water, and I've saved a few lives in my time. It goes with the territory, dear. So, Val and I barely exchanged a glance before breaking into a perfectly synchronised front crawl to shore. And what did we find? It was only that vice-cracker, whipping up the crowd something silly, signing autographs, shaking hands with the men planting wet ones on the women and holding their babes, as if his very touch would impart a drop of his gift. Meanwhile, he's wearing nothing but his racist trunks, which left little to the imagination, and impressed even less. Seeing Buzz approach, he says in that American drawl, If it isn't my two best girls, the cheek of it. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the real stars of tomorrow's show, the Sisters Siren. Never have I seen two swimmers so perfectly in sync. 
well, dear. In that moment, it couldn't have been further from the truth. Val didn't give me a backwards glance as she skipped along the sand in his direction, sidling up beside him, smiling dotingly, and propping up his celebrity. A feeling came upon me that had been bubbling under the surface during all those nights on the town when Val's head would be turned towards one young buck or another, though I never had realised it before. Our moorings were loosening, becoming unsafe. Disconsolate, I turned back to the sea and waded into its comforting depths. But I was granted no peace by that man, who, not content with the devotions of one of us, seemed determined to get into my good graces. Swimming out towards the horizon with no aim other than the act itself, I felt the keen sense that I was being pursued. Turning my head backwards, without breaking my rhythm, I saw the unmistakable stroke of that jungle man coming towards me, and Val idling at the shore behind him. Mirren, hold up, calls he, and, to try and throw him off my course, I took a sharp left turn and broke into a spirited sprint. He mirrored my move so we were neck and neck, though he closer to land and causing quite an unnecessary commotion in the water, as usual. Doing my best to ignore him, I continued on my course in the direction of the North Pier, only half a mile away or so. Now, he was no stranger to sea-swimming, but he was on my surf, and no match for me. Our impromptu race had not gone unnoticed on the shore, and as I rotated my head left with each stroke of my right arm, I observed the crowds along the beach growing denser and people running along the promenade to keep pace with us. On hearing the piercing imitations of his Tarzan call, and cries of, Go, Johnny, go, from the shore, I realised, from my position further out to sea, I had evaded the throng's attentions, and so chose my moment to slip below the surface, swimming the remaining distance to the pier, unseen by the crowd, or the man himself. Through the sand and silt, I soon saw the encrusted iron pillars of the pier ahead. I emerged and rested concealed among them. Several long minutes passed before my pursuer reached the same destination. Clinging to a pile, I watched him struggle to catch his breath, almost green with exhaustion. He recovered himself and cast his eyes about for me before moving back towards the shore. There, he was carried out to a clamour of cheers, and, judging by the front page of the Evening Gazette later that day, greeted by newspaper men who, wrongly, interpreted the act as an extravagant publicity stunt for the water follies. <sighs> Intentional or not, it worked. The show opened the following night to a packed arena and a horde of dejected would-be ticket holders spilling onto the promenade outside. I can see from your expressions that you are reasonably perplexed by Marin's version of events. The newspaper cuttings describing Weissmuller's one-man sea race can be viewed on the far wall of this exhibition space.
As per her story, you will find no mention of Mirren Bright. Was she really there that day? It's a question I have struggled with for the past four years, and I'm yet to reach a satisfying conclusion. What we do know is that, following his stint in Blackpool, Johnny Weissmuller left to go on a tour around Europe and the US with, who Mirren described as, a new Jane under his arm, Valentina Valtameri. Mirren told me that he had, in fact, first asked her to accompany him after becoming fixated on her following their race. But the mystery of my origins had left me quite without the necessary documentation for such an undertaking, she said. I had no solid identity, and besides, the thought of spending weeks on end in landlocked countries and states as his gal Friday left me cold. The second item I would like to draw your attention to is a photograph of Mirren Bright's Aqua Bells, a top afloat promoting the 1956 Aquamarine Circus. The sepia crowd of onlookers along the packed promenade is made up mostly of men and a few children. The Aqua Bells wear floral swimming costumes and chiffon capes. Most of them are trying to hold on to their sheer wide-brimmed hats. Some are laughing at one another. Others interact with the crowd. Mirin. Front and centre of the makeshift staircase built on the back of a military-style truck, looked straight at the camera with the same enchanting smile the photograph evoked in her when I shared it with her during one of our interviews. In 1950, following the success of the Water Follies, Mirren was asked to select the finest female swimmers from the Derby Baths and form her own circus troupe. Mirren held power in an industry which, at the time, rarely afforded it to women. She described confrontations with management, advocating for fair pay for her girls, and insisting that producers should prioritise their talents more than their ornamental beauty. Why hire the best if you don't want them to be the best? She recalled helping many of them through personal challenges, but insisted it was all in service of putting on a good show. Her training schedule was relentless and gruelling, it's no wonder they all appear so waif-like. Her treatment for a cold. Dive in and swim it off. The bells would have to stand under a warm shower for half an hour sometimes after long training sessions and still come out shivering. But Mirren's chatter about the circus often returned to another aspect of the tower. Dr Cocker's Aquarium. A warren of artificial caves housing thousands of fish. Many of you will recall its neglected state before its removal in 2010, but even in its post-war heyday, Mirren felt it was a cheerless place. Even a fool could see those animals were unhappy, and none more so than Stella. I saw it every day in the narrows of her desolate, inky eyes. She arrived as a baby, and I adopted her. Oh, she adopted me more like. Poor thing wouldn't come out of her lair for weeks. Was hardly eating. None of the keepers could get anywhere near her, and she would shoot a salty jet of water at anyone who tried, or else grab onto them with her powerful suckers, leaving behind nasty bruises, and even torn flesh when she eventually freed them. But whenever I paid her a visit... She would tentatively creep out and swivel her seeing eye to focus on me. 
Observing this, the manager of the aquarium asked me if I would try feeding her through a hatch in the artificial stone encasement above her tank. We felt a profound pull towards each other, and not only did she take the food, she was also brave enough to reach her tentacles to the top of the tank in invitation. I greeted her touch with mine, hoisting myself up onto the ledge beside her. I wasn't a bit scared of her gentle domination of me as she latched onto my forearm, first with her small suckers and then with her more powerful ones. I felt less a sense that she was trying to pull me in and more that she was trying to heave herself out. As she tasted my skin, there was instant recognition and I felt her yearning for freedom on an otherworldly level. Leaning in, with my free hand, I stroked her bulbous head, and her colour changed from a dark red to a luminescent coral. I was in awe of her. We stayed like this for a long time, until I realised I was needed upstairs for rehearsals. Remarkably, she allowed me to carefully remove her suckers before she glided weightlessly back through the water to her lair. That night, I couldn't focus on the performance. My heart was downstairs with Stella's three. In many ways, Stella and Val were the same. Loyal in close confines. Set them free, and they wouldn't look back though I suspect Stella was the more faithful of the two. I never wanted Val to leave me, but I wanted nothing more than for Stella to escape. She often did, and each time it would give me a thrill quite unlike any a good performance could bring, or any bow for that matter. Many a night I would receive a radio call mid-show telling me Stella had evaded the stewards. She would spend a few weeks figuring out the latest lock or weight put into place to confine her, then choose her timing perfectly, inexplicably undoing it before hiding, camouflaged in some recess of the filtration beds below the network of tanks. I would be called down there, handed a pair of thigh-high waders while still in makeup, and asked to coax her back into her tank but each time felt like a tiny betrayal. She would blacken with agitation and not cooperate with me for days, with longer intervals at each juncture. The last time it happened, I coaxed her quite in the other direction. She had managed to break through the feeding hatch and disguised herself on the doorframe of the aquarium entrance. When I discovered her, Quite on impulse, I tried the handle. To my delight, it opened and poof! Out she flew, expertly dodging cars, a tram, and scaling the seawall in seconds flat, to the dumbfounded amazement of promenading holidaymakers. I watched her, laughing, such overwhelming joy at finally granting her liberation quite oblivious to the disapproving glare of her captor behind me. It is funny, come to think of it, 
I've had many acquaintances through the years, but only two real friends, and they have both been the undoing of me in their way. I didn't realise it at the time. When management caught wind of my complicity in the escape and showed me the door, but in fact, Stella had liberated me too. From the behest of the kingpins and the big top, that would never have allowed me my rightful place in it. Mirin wasn't without a sense of humour, and, like you, she saw the comical side to this bizarre tale, though claimed she was quite bereft at the time. As outlandish as it sounds, as you explore the collection today, can I draw attention to a newspaper cutting taken from the Evening Gazette, dated 15th of July, 1959, from a regular column entitled, Believe It or Not, and to the cryptic wording of Mirren's letter of termination from the Tower Company Limited, dated a few days later. From these, you can draw your own conclusions. Mirren's sense of liberation wasn't to last. The rumour mill spun around her in full force that summer, by which time, we estimate, she was 36 and ostracised from the only community she had ever known. Mrs Welsh had died, leaving her house to Mirren, but the boarding house business had fallen away. As Mirren so poetically put it, she had to find some way of keeping herself in coal and clean knickers. How exactly she did this, she was never explicit about, but she did once refer to the diabolical providence of one Madame Dupont, requesting a meeting with her some months after she was dismissed from the tower. We can now safely assume she was referring to Eliza Dupont, the Madame of the Montmartre Theatre, then at 23 Promenade, who looked after the female entertainers there. These women weren't exactly performers, appearing in tableau vivants or living pictures on account of a legal loophole that allowed nude shows, providing the women didn't move. We have several accounts of men using pea-shooters to try and provoke some movement, and one of the teenage son of the theatre owner spiking a chaise long on the stage with itching powder, his intention to make the sitter wriggle. Mirren never told me whether she took the meeting with Madame Dupont, but she left plenty of clues behind, suggesting she did. The next photograph I would like to share with you is one I discovered among Mirren's personal belongings after her passing. It shows a Montmartre theatre in 1962, the hoardings promoting the superb loveliness of beautiful and talented girls, with special mentions for Spidora the Mysterious Spider-Woman and Mirandia the Mermaid, alive. Our wonderful tour guides are available throughout the day to show you around the house and our collection, but I'd like to begin the tour myself, if you would like to follow me downstairs. While some necessary structural work has been carried out, great effort has been made to preserve the cellar rooms as Mirin left them. As you will gather, the room we stand in now was Mirin's bedroom, containing many of her personal belongings, including costumes and memorabilia. You will note the glass display box containing an elaborate mermaid tail. It's made from over 1,000 hand-sewn PVC scales and embossed with costume jewellery. Tellingly, 
there is no shell bra to go with it. On the far wall is the same single bed we assume she slept in from girlhood. Why she never asked some of the many people who stayed here to help her move one of the more comfortable beds from upstairs, I don't know. But Murrin was very private about this part of the house. Indeed, I only saw it for the first time on my final arranged visit to see her. That meeting was unusual from the start. Murrin usually requested I visit her when the tide was out, which I acknowledge was peculiar, but by now you have probably gathered that most of our conversations were. I assumed this was simply a reflection of her affinity with the sea, which she spoke of often. But on this particular day, in summer 2022, Mirin asked me to visit when the tide was in. When I arrived, she didn't answer the door, and I wondered whether she had simply got confused with her instructions. The door was open, so I, I thought I should at least check on her. Not finding her in the lounge, I searched the house. Despite her advanced years, Mirin was still fit enough to tackle these stairs and look after herself. She rejected my frequent requests to hire her some home help and insisted she could still swim rings around any young rake who dared to challenge her, though no one had in a while. The first thing I noticed that was different about the house that day was the sound you can all hear now, of rushing water. When visiting Mirren, I had often noted the damp odour that's evident down here now. It's not an unfamiliar one for anyone who's been lucky enough to visit a basement establishment on the promenade before, but in a moment, I will show you exactly why it's particularly strong in this building. There are so many reasons we should celebrate Mirren Bright as an important part of this town's heritage. Her stories were eccentric, granted, but her career is comparable to many of the great performers who contributed to Blackpool's legacy as a destination for entertainment. So why have such great efforts been made to restore the house of one performer in particular, rather than, say, having an exhibition dedicated to her in our existing museum? The answer lies in my discovery that day, which I'll now share with you. I ask for the next part of the tour that you refrain from taking photographs and follow me through this door behind me. What you can see ahead of us is an arched passageway leading to the front of the house and beyond. I think you'll all agree it's a sight to behold. Please, follow me in single file and, where possible, be careful not to touch the walls. They are encrusted with thousands of shells, pebbles, crustaceans and urchins, arranged in an incredible formation to represent waves and, beneath them, a vast and varied array of ocean life. As we come to the end of the passage, I ask you to move carefully onto the purpose-built viewing platform to form a circle. Forgive me for raising my voice as it opens up into a circular cave. We are now standing directly beneath Mirren's front garden, and below us is a dugout pool containing, you've probably gathered, seawater. The tide is outgoing at the moment, so it's only around a foot deep, and in a few minutes it will be entirely empty. But when the tide is fully in, the pool fills to where we are standing now, eight foot deep. 
the shell formations above the pool you will recognise as detailed representations of some of Blackpool's landmarks, including the tower. The depiction of the Art Deco facade of the old Derby Baths reveals to us that this incredible work was carried out in the last century. This, we must conclude, was the real life's work of Mirren Bright, one she completed unencumbered by any Hollywood star, ringmaster or madam. Within the pool itself are many more wonders of the sea. As exotic and wondrous as they appear, experts have confirmed that all of the shells used in these murals and the animals represented are native to the northwest coastline. They include at least six species of whales and dolphins, including an orca and a leaping thresher shark just over there. Just beneath where this gentleman is standing, you'll find a colony of leatherback turtles. The incredible detail in the depictions of coral and anemones around the base of the pool have allowed us to identify their type. My favourites are the jewel anemone and the phosphorescent sea pen, which feature at the bottom of the far northeast side of the cave, over there. Leaflets are available explaining what you can identify and where. You might recognise the large lion's mane jellyfish. We had a huge number wash up on South Beach recently, as well as crabs, lobsters and a colourful array of starfish and seahorses. As the water flows out now, on the base of the pool you'll spot the shining pearl in this cave of jewels. A beautifully and accurately rendered three-foot octopus vulgaris, or common octopus. Though it's the only one of its kind in Mirren's cave. The drainage point is visible now on the far side of the pool. A small opening allowing for seawater to flow freely in and out. It is just about large enough for a small human woman to fit through. The day I discovered this cave was unlike any other in my life. The incredible awe you are experiencing now was combined with deep panic and grief. I'm sure you all remember the reports of the Coast Guard and police searching unsuccessfully for an elderly woman at sea in the summer of 2022. It took a long time for me to come to terms with the fact that I will probably never fully understand what happened to her that day. Mirren told me she had two friends in her lifetime. By the time she passed, I hope she considered it to be three. One for each of Stella's hearts. This inexplicable life she lived underground, in contrast to the captivating display she put on for the public above it, was Mirren's private world. In passing, I am certain she wanted me to share it with you and to celebrate her unique life. Since I first found Mirren Bright's photograph, I have been driven to the point of obsession trying to work out the truth of her story. I was, unquestionably, under her spell. Perhaps the fact that I have dedicated the past four years to memorialising her life tells you I still am. Parts of the tale will likely always remain a mystery, but if Mirren taught me anything, it's that some stories simply have unknowable depths.